Good evening. Would you please, uh, if you're not already there, turn to Psalm 37. I'm going to read for us the first 11 verses of this psalm. I'll lead us in the reading. I will pray for us and ask the Lord to bless our time and his word, and then we'll be seated and we'll begin to examine it together. These are the words of David. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what you've done here for us and among us as you've gathered us together tonight. We pray now that you would open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts to receive your word. Make us more and more, Father, humble hearers of your word who are not merely hearers but doers. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. What we're going to see tonight in this particular passage, the first 11 verses of Psalm 37, uh, is, is not a linear argument that David is giving to us. As George Horn wrote about Psalm 37, he said, The psalm is rather a collection of divine statements on the same subject than a continued and connected discourse. And so we're going to examine it in that fashion. We're going to see what David would have us see. uh, And as we do that, we're going to notice uh, each particular part in the many verses here that he brings it to us. This passage is given to us as an antidote to a temptation that we all face from time to time. He will tell us three times here, fret not because of evildoers. You may have noticed that in verse 1, in verse 7, in verse 8, fret not because of evildoers. Literally, what that tells us is it tells us, do not get heated. Uh, The word is not so much a prohibition against worry as it is uh, against anger and a sense of unfairness. And it's that sense of unfairness that would lead us to envy the evildoer, as it's described in verse 1. David's going to give us an alternative to this fretting that he's warning against tonight. Uh, And what he's going to tell us to do instead is to depend Depend entirely on the Lord. But far from just telling us to do this, as the Bible so faithfully does, it does not just tell us to depend upon the Lord. David here is going to give us a very reasoned argument for why we should, why we must depend upon the Lord. I would ask you to think before we begin here about the ways that we live in a time 
where this is, a, this is a very significant reminder for us. Do we live in a time in which we need to be reminded to depend on the Lord? And you might consider the last week of your life or the last month of your life. Well, what, what is going on in your life that would cause you to waver in your dependency upon the Lord? Are you caring for young children in the midst of that battle? Are you caring for uh, elderly parents? Uh, are you pulled with financial worry? Are you dealing with long-term suffering and struggle physically? Uh, the list goes on and on. We are never without an opportunity to wander from our trust in the Lord and to begin to doubt and fear and fret over evildoers as we look around us. God is so good to us that he gives us the reminders that we need as we need them. And so I would suggest to you that tonight the Lord is sovereignly as your heavenly father. He is bringing you a reminder of the reasons why you must and why you can depend on the Lord. Uh, David's going to give us three. So that's what we'll see this evening. Three reasons to depend on the Lord. The first reason David will give us is this. He says to us, depend on the Lord because dependency reflects a true knowledge of reality. To depend on the Lord is to live in such a way that I'm living in light of the, 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 the truth of how reality has been set up and established by our God. The ungodly are consistently described in the, in, in the Bible as a people who act from ignorance, an ignorant people. We must be clear, it's not an ignorance that the Bible tells us excuses them. This is a willful ignorance. It's a chosen ignorance. But it really is interesting to see how many times the Bible condemns the wicked and points to their lack of knowledge, their ignorance. Let me just give you a few examples of this. Uh, Romans one twenty one tells us that the wicked, although they know God, refuse to acknowledge God or give him thanks so that they become futile in their thinking. Remember that description? Ephesians 4.18, Paul writes that those without God, quote, are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, and here's the other side of the coin, due to their hardness of heart. See how he puts the two together? It's just because of the ignorance that's in them, but it's there due to their hardness of heart. Temptation to sin and the consequences of sin are repeatedly tied to a lack of knowledge, a knowledge of God and a knowledge of his ways. The prophets in the Old Testament even use this language as God is condemning the people of Israel. Hosea 4.6, God says through the prophet, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. Since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. That is, that is strong, powerful language, a powerful condemnation. Isaiah 5.13, therefore my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. And if we ask the question from that Isaiah chapter 5 statement, what is the knowledge that they are lacking? What's the knowledge that they are being held accountable for here? Well, the verse immediately prior says of them that they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands. You see the connection that's being made there. So let's ask the question here in Psalm 37, in our passage, what is it that David is describing to us about reality that the wicked do not know? 
Well, there are many things. I'll just direct your attention. This is how we'll do each of these three reasons because he comes back to these over and over again. So just notice these places. Notice verse 2. What is it that the wicked do not know? They do not know that they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Look down at verse 9. They do not know that the evildoers shall be cut off. Verse 10. They do not know that in just a little while the wicked will be no more. And verse 11, and this given in contrast to the way that the wicked uh, are, are so often said to speak in reference to the righteous. Doesn't it often tell us that the wicked mock the righteous and their path, and the wicked expect that their way will put them above the righteous in this quest for prosperity and happiness in this life? They will be uh, the ones who finish. Well, in contrast to that, it turns out, verse 11, here's what they don't know. They will be outlasted by the faithful. But the meek shall inherit the land. And there's something that ties all of these together that we've looked at. David comforts the righteous here by reminding them of the certainty of God's righteous judgment. We depend on the Lord because we know something of his righteousness. We have seen in the pages of scripture the way that he has so faithfully dispensed his righteousness. We've seen in the person of Jesus Christ the perfect display of God's righteousness against sin. We know these things about him. And this is a principal distinction in the Bible between the wicked and the child of God. It is this conviction concerning the righteousness of God. Keep your finger here in Psalm 37 for a moment and turn over in the New Testament to the book of Hebrews. Find Hebrews chapter 11. And verse, we'll start in verse 5. He's going to begin here describing Enoch as an example of, of, what, of the, the statement he's going to make in verse 6. Verse 6 is our focus, but we'll read beginning in verse 5. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. That begs the question, how, how can we? Please, God. How could it be that Enoch pleased God? Verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And stop there. See, the writer uses two ideas to summarize the sort of faith that he's talking about here. The faith that commends us to God. This is a faith that involves, number one, a conviction that he exists and this is not simply a statement of the, intellect, the, the theoretical existence of God. He's saying this is a lens. The knowledge of the existence of God is a lens through which this person sees everything that he does uh, and analyzes everything, every place that he goes. We walk through all of life with this conviction that God exists and with that reality in mind. So this faith is a faith that includes a conviction that God exists, but also a conviction of his righteous judgment. It's a faith that recognizes God's right to judge and God's declaration that he, in fact, does just that. Uh, And not simply that he will be the rewarder of all. Who is it that he will reward in that verse, in verse 6? He is the rewarder of those who seek him, which, of course, means that this person who is pleasing to God recognizes that God judges those who do not. He judges those who do not seek him. So here's how this relates to our passage in Psalm 37. You can come back into into Psalm 37. What is it that comes as a result of such convictions? 
the existence of God and the righteous judgment of God. If I become aware that I'm living every moment of my life under the vision of a God who has created all things, the God of the Bible, uh, in whom everything moves and lives and has its being, and this is a God who is not unconcerned with the affairs of men, but who judges in the affairs of men. If I live my life under that reality, well, is that going to create a pride in me or a humility in me? See, I'm brought low by this knowledge of this God that exists and judges. And if I'm to move forward then, I can only move forward in utter dependency upon this one who holds my molecules together with every moment that passes. This knowledge, such conviction, creates a dependency It's a humility that comes as I come to grips with the reality of the God of the Bible. And this is what he wants. This is the sort of people that he wants. Psalm 18.27 says, For you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. Psalm 147, verse 6, The Lord lifts up the humble, he casts the wicked to the ground. And we could go on and on and on. A humble dependency is what the Lord desires in his people, and it's what he accomplishes. And he accomplishes it partly in revealing to us his ways and his character. No one can be exposed to a God like this without being changed, can they? And we are changed by being brought low. And so he tells us here, depend on the Lord because you are one who knows the character and the person of this God who reigns. And so the only proper response to that knowledge of true reality is to depend upon him. And this is a distinguishing element. That leads us directly to the second reason that David's going to give us here, to depend on the Lord. Depend on the Lord because dependency comes from a true knowledge of reality. Second, depend on the Lord because dependency distinguishes us from the wicked. It distinguishes us. And we see this in the commands of the passage. You may have noticed as we read through, uh, through the 11 verses how many commands there are in this. Did you see that? Let's notice what we are commanded to do. And child of God, these are commands to you. You are commanded tonight to do these things. Verse 3. Oh, by the way, don't just notice the command. Notice the prepositional phrase that comes after it here. You might notice a common theme. Right? Verse 3. Trust. In the Lord. Verse 4, delight yourself in the Lord. Verse 5, commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him. Verse 7, be still before the Lord. Wait patiently for Him. Verse 9, wait for the Lord. As we just mentioned those in rapid fire, are you getting a picture of the sort of person? that he is calling us to be here, that God is calling us to be as we walk through our lives. This is a stark contrast with the wicked of this world, the evildoer and wrongdoer of verse 1. We see a a, a comparison in verse 7. There's a description given about the wicked there. Look at verse uh, 7b, where it begins with, Fret not yourself. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Now let's just appreciate the distinction between that sort of a path and the commands that the righteous are given here in this passage. Remember, this wicked one is a man who is living as if God isn't. 
right? As if he doesn't exist. This is the one of Hebrews 11 who is not pleasing the Lord because he is not living by faith. He is not living under the reality that God exists and that he judges, right? That's the one that we're dealing with here. Uh, And because he isn't pleasing to God, uh, anyone who would be allowed to come near to God must believe those things, but this man does not. Now, here's the question. If that is, if such a man is walking through life with that set of lenses on his face, there is no God. There is no judgment. And he desires to prosper. We all desire to prosper, right? Anything wrong with a desire to prosper in this life? No, not, not at all. This man desires to prosper, but he lives with this reality in mind. Well, what is he going to do? He's on his own. He must make his way, right? This is a man who prospers in his way. This is a man who must devise evil devices, as he is described here. This is simply pragmatism, right? There's a whole, there's a whole, uh, a, a, a whole um, uh, worldview that we're dealing with here. There's no ultimate standard. And so, if I want to prosper, well, then whatever works, uh, whatever makes me happy, is right. So whatever I have to do to get ahead, well, let's do it. Why not do it? There is no good reason not to do it if I'm living with that set of lenses on my eyes. Now, such a man, then, he's going to live with that, with that aim. What is he unwilling to do? How about any of the commands of Psalm chapter 37. Any of them. He will not do these things. He will not trust in the Lord. He will not delight himself in the Lord. He certainly will not commit his way to the Lord. He will not be still before the Lord. There's no time for that. He will not be patient and wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. There's work to be done. The clock is ticking. This man will be unwilling to perform any of these commands. This is something for us to consider tonight. If these are commands and these are God's purpose, uh, God intends to distinguish us from the wicked with this sort of a worldview and this sort of resulting lifestyle. Then we have to ask ourselves, um, do we view these commands as optional in our lives this evening? This this may well be cause for us to take some time to reflect on our own living, uh, the living of our families, and consider uh, whether this is a reflection of of us, whether this is distinguishing us from the wicked. Uh, Do you recognize that you are ordered to trust him tonight? He renews his command to you tonight to trust in the Lord. He commands you not just to trust him, but to trust him enough to wait on him. And not just to wait on him, but to actually wait patiently for him. And not just to wait patiently, but as you're waiting patiently, to work to find your delight in him. And as you're walking through the trials of this life, he commands you to be still before him. How hard is it to do that in the world that we live in, with the fallen nature that we possess, with every single person we've ever met walking with a fallen and sinful nature. How difficult is it to do this? This is a hard thing. And make no mistake, he's clearly talking about doing this and hearing these commands in the context of trial and difficulty. 
I mean, David in Psalm 37, this is not a, a time in his life when things are going well. He is tempted to be jealous of evildoers here. He's seeing them prosper while he is not. This is a difficult time, and he commands us to pursue this in those very circumstances. If it's as difficult as all of that, well, this better be a constant element of our loving encouragement to each other, don't you think? This is hard. So when I am struggling, I, I need your love, I need your sympathy, but I need much more than your sympathy, don't I? I need to be reminded of God's goodness, of God's past goodnesses to me, his goodnesses to us as a people, the goodness that we see on the pages of Scripture. I need to be reminded of his trustworthiness and of his command to me. I need someone who loves me enough to come to me with tears and genuine love, but who's willing to say to me, brother, I'm crying with you, but as I weep with you, remember, you're commanded to fight for joy in this time. It is the command of the Lord that you fight for joy and trust and dependency upon the Lord. He names the alternative to this in verse 8, and he warns us against it. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. Such a perceptive word, because it is so tempting for us to react in anger, and it sounds so right, and it feels so right, and we have to decide whether we trust the Lord or not when he tells us it will never result in righteousness. Nothing you do in response to your trials as a result of anger will ever be fulfilling the righteousness of God. James 1.20, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And that very comforting passage from Paul in Romans chapter 12, verse 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Isn't this exactly what we need tonight? So David pleads with us to depend upon the Lord. Because, number one, that's what comes from a true understanding of reality. Number two, because dependency distinguishes us from the wicked. And we are to delight in and strive to be distinguished so so that the work of the Holy Spirit can be set on display for the world to see. Finally, the third reason he's going to give us is depend on the Lord because dependency is rewarded. Praise the Lord that we don't serve a God who asks us to wait on him forever. We, we do not serve a God who tells us to wait for relief and then gets in the car and drives away and never comes back. That is not the God that we worship. We depend on the Lord because no one who has ever done so has ever been disappointed, ever, not once. Let's start by looking back at verse 3 to remind ourselves it's not just attitudes that are spoken of in these verses, and it's not just attitudes that are rewarded by God. His calls always include a call to action in light of attitude. So verse 3, we see these words, Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Befriend faithfulness. I'm reading that out of the ESV. It may be a little bit ambiguous or unclear what's being spoken of there. If that's the case, it's always helpful to look at a variety of English translations to get a sense of the breadth of the meaning of those words. Uh, The New American Standard then, just to give you some other 
translations, says there, instead of befriend faithfulness, it says cultivate faithfulness. And the NET Bible, the NET Bible says, maintain your integrity. Dwell in the land and maintain your integrity. Do you hear how this idea that we're being called to is an active idea? This is nothing passive uh, whatsoever. Uh, Our waiting on the Lord is not a passive waiting. It's a choice. It's a choice to depend on him while we live amid the circumstances that he has chosen to give to us. David goes further and he declares what will be the result of a decision to depend on the Lord. Go back through a few verses here, reread some of what we've already read, but I want you to notice the conclusion of each statement. Right? So verse 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. Verse 5, commit your way to the Lord, trust in him and he will act. We're waiting on him, but we're waiting expectantly for a God who will respond and will act. Verse 9, down at verse 9. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. There will be a result, a fruit of this waiting that we're called to. Finally, verse 11. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. One thing is clear when we look at all of those together. We are promised something, aren't we? We're promised something magnificent as a result of a life that depends upon the Lord. It will not go unrewarded. Let's use verse 4 to sort of flesh that out. We'll use verse 4 as a representative verse of all of those promises. Uh, We could spend an entire evening just dealing with this, right? Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. If you read verse 4 and you come away with, with any thought that God in the heavens can be manipulated or that God is some sort of private genie, you have misunderstood the verse. That misunderstanding is common and it has caused immeasurable deception and suffering in this world. We're going to talk about what this means. I just want you to hold in your mind, though, this misconception. that What that saying is, uh, delight yourself in the Lord and he will make himself your genie to give you your, the desires of your heart in this life. Right? Remember that as an option. Let's see how that compares to what the Bible actually promises the people of God. Uh, such a thought was at the heart of the corrupt Jewish system of Jesus' day. You remember the accusations he gave, widows' houses being robbed, uh, people being lied to so that they gave to the temple, somehow thinking they were purchasing obligation on the part of God. Listen, God is never obligated to anyone else. Such a thought should be disgusting to us, that we would think we can bring the God of the universe into our pocket, obligated to us. All that verse 4 is telling us is that when our delight is fully in him so that I love what he loves and my priorities are aligned with his priorities, then my desires will be in perfect harmony with his. In other words, we can say it this way. No one who has trusted in the Lord has ever been disappointed. No one who has trusted God has ever failed to find perfect fulfillment 
in him and his ways. Perfect restoration, perfect satisfaction. There's not a single soul in heaven that has ever regretted the decision to depend upon the Lord rather than themselves. Not one. Now, what about this alternative? Uh, What of those who have decided not to depend on the Lord, but instead, uh, like the the wicked man of verse 7, is pursuing their own means instead of depending on the Lord? Do you see that the opposite is true for them? The opposite promise is true. Proverbs 14, 12 tells us, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to what? Death, destruction. This is the very practical reason that we must not envy the wicked. There is nothing to envy in the wicked. They sprout up. They seem to prosper. But we don't envy them because we know something. We know the nature of reality. We know the nature of the God who runs things and who has utterly stacked the deck in his favor and in the favor of his people that he loves. We know these things. And so we trust in the Lord. We don't lean on our own understanding, we are to acknowledge him in all of our ways, depending on him to make our paths straight. And when we do that, the Lord promises us reward. David pleads with us here to depend on the Lord, and I think he's given more than enough reason for us tonight to do so. I would give us something to think about as we move toward closing this evening. David is writing quite a long time ago, he is a man who experienced and was led through so many different situations to learn about the character of God and, and, and was able to trust in his promises, therefore. Is that right? Do you understand that this evening, you and I stand here in an even better position than David was to see the dependability of God? And that's the case because of three words. It is finished. We live on the other side of the centerpiece of all space and time. It's the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the event that 1 Peter 1 says, this is amazing to me, says that prophets of old and angels long to see and understand. The Lord spoke through the prophets of the coming one and of his redemption. They wrote about it. They were faithful, but they were dying to know. What does this mean? How is this going to happen? We are on the other side of the cross. We've seen it. We know how the Lord has reconciled all things so that he could be both the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. On the cross, we saw every act of dependence of every saint of all time to have been justified. Jesus committed himself fully to the Lord, didn't he? 1 Peter 2, 23 says, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Jesus fully depended on his God and Father. Jesus sought out and received the reward for perfect obedience and perfect dependency. He's spoken of in Hebrews 12, verse 2. um, He who is the, the, it says, the founder and perfecter of our faith. It tells us, look to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now follow this line of reasoning 
that Paul draws from this. All right? So we've just read from the book of Hebrews that Jesus has been seated at the right hand of the throne of God as a reward for his obedience. Is that right? Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, verses 6 and 7, that we who have been made alive together with Christ have been raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And listen to verse 7. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Did you hear that? Do you hear what his plan is for you, believer? The, the plan of the Almighty, he has set things up so that by uniting you with Christ, here's his plan for you in the age to come. His plan is to set about to show you the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness. That's what he has planned for you. Remember the picture that we, that we mentioned earlier of uh, the misinterpretation of things like Psalm 37.4. Uh, the, the interpretation that says, this means that God will give me what I want in this life. Let's just imagine to what extent that fails to live up to what we are promised in the age to come. What will it be like to spend millennia as the object of God's attempt, the God who cannot fail, by the way, of God's attempt to display the immeasurable riches of his grace. It's his plan for us personally. What will that be like? I'll tell you what it will be like. It will be the fulfillment of verse 4 of our passage. We will get the desires of our heart. But that will only be the fulfillment of verse 4 once we are sanctified enough in this life to so that our desires are wrenched away from the pathetic insufficient, fleeting pleasures of this life. I mean, the notion that I could feel content to exchange what he's promising me for some temporal blessing today. Jonathan Edwards wrote about this. C.S. Lewis talked about this in a beautiful way. Our problem is not that we desire too much, but that we desire too little. We are far too easily pleased. And so as a people, we must remember what God has promised us. And the rewards that he gives to those who trust in the finished work of Christ as our righteousness and walk in dependency upon that. There is nothing in this place, is there, that will compare to the experience of the immeasurable riches of his grace. And this is what he has in store for his children. No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. And so as we go from here, as we live together in our congregations, loving one another, building each other up after the image of Christ, let us steadily pray for one another and encourage each other to obey the Lord's call. Depend on him. Because he alone is dependable. Trust in him. He is the only utterly trustworthy one you will ever find. Delight yourself in him. And he promises you that he will give you the desires of your heart. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are, we are stunned and humbled before you. As we consider your promises, 
as we think back to all of the ways, not only in the pages of Scripture, but in our own lives, consistently, we have seen your goodness. We've seen your faithfulness. Forgive us for the ways and the times that we fall short of an utter dependency upon you. It is such a comfort to us to know that Christ depended upon you when we could not. It's such a comfort to know that you know our frame and that you are not one who has given us a high priest unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. And we know we stumble in many ways. We, we come to you because of that knowledge, low and humble before you. And it's such a comfort to know that that is where you want us. Lord, make us more and more a humble people who joyfully depend upon you, who no matter what happens to us in this life, respond by waiting for you. And we thank you for your promise that no one who has ever waited on you has ever been disappointed. All this, Father, we pray in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.